This morning we're going to listen to Jesus draw his great kingdom life discourse, also known as the Sermon on the Mount, to a close. Verses 24 to 27 will be Jesus' final words in this sermon. And then we'll get two important verses from Matthew summarizing how the crowds who were listening responded to Jesus' sermon. I'd like to read this closing section in full up front. So follow along as we look at Matthew 7, verses 24 to 29. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You've heard the expression, easier said than done. Well, perhaps we could turn the phrase a bit to apply to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' teaching here in this kingdom life discourse was easier heard than done. At least in this sermon, Jesus seems to have been easy to listen to. His metaphors and figures of speech were vivid and interesting. The picture of life that he paints is remarkably beautiful. The ethical responsibilities he calls for are often recognized to be of the highest order for human flourishing. Even atheists and non-Christians admire the Sermon on the Mount. Famous atheist Richard Dawkins once wrote, Jesus, if he existed, was surely one of the great ethical innovators of history. The Sermon on the Mount is way ahead of its time. His turn-the-other-cheek anticipated Gandhi and Martin Luther King by 2,000 years. And speaking of Mahatma Gandhi, the famous Hindu leader has said, Christ's Sermon on the Mount fills me with bliss even today. Its sweet verses have even today the power to quench my agony of soul. With all due respect to Mr. Dawkins and Mahatma Gandhi, they both seem to have missed the point of Jesus' teaching entirely. The crowds recognize Jesus' authority in his teaching, his unique authority. Surely their scribes were recognized to have a certain kind of authority, but Jesus taught differently than their scribes. Their scribes would appeal to other rabbis and traditions as the authority behind their teaching. Jesus had said, but I say to you, And his word on the matter was absolute. In the previous paragraph, in verse 21, Jesus had said that it is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Here in verses 24 and 25, it is the one who does these words of mine who will endure the storm. It sure seems like Jesus is equating his own words with the Father's will. It is Jesus' words that carry God's authority to grant eternal life. It is Jesus' words that carry God's authority to shape, guide, direct, and even rule over your life and mine. Some of us get very uncomfortable listening to doing sermons. 
When a preacher stands up here and emphasizes what you ought to be doing, some of us get nervous. Is he preaching moralism or legalism from the pulpit? Or some of us feel guilty, overwhelmed by the demands, and all too aware of our failure to meet those demands. We would wish that the preacher would give us a little comfort and make the Christian life feel not so burdensome. But Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is very much a doing sermon. We miss it in our English translations, but the Greek word translated does in this passage appears 22 times in the Sermon on the Mount. It gets translated differently in different contexts, but it might be the melodic line of this sermon, if I may enlist a musical metaphor here. The harmony to this melodic line could be the abundance of commands throughout the sermon. Let me remind you of three key verses where Jesus uses this word. The first occurrence is in Matthew 5.19, where he said, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Later in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. The word practicing reflects the same Greek word that's translated does in our passage this morning. And of course, we saw this word last week in the golden rule of Matthew seven twelve, where Jesus said, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. There's one other passage that I would draw your attention to in this regard, but you might miss its connection in reading the English. Last week, we also looked at Matthew 7, verses 17 to 19, about the good tree and the bad tree, the healthy tree and the diseased tree. The word translated bear, as in bear fruit, is this same Greek word. And of course, that's an image for doing the commands, obeying the commands of Jesus. So Jesus' kingdom life discourse is very much a doing sermon. And as he comes to his conclusion in chapter 7, the word appears much more frequently, adding a significant crescendo to that theme. However, that's not all it is. As we conclude the Sermon on the Mount this morning, we need to remember its introduction, the Beatitudes, which, to keep the musical metaphor going, we could view as a kind of overture to this great operatic sermon. So Jesus started this sermon with a focus on being, a focus on our identity, a focus on who we are. And he concludes the sermon with a focus on doing, a focus on what we do. The backdrop of what Jesus says about who we are always needs to be kept in mind. It's the indicative that necessarily comes before all the imperatives. Turn back to those Beatitudes for just a moment. Matthew chapter 5. Each of those character qualities, attributes, and attitudes are descriptive of who we are in Christ, of who God has made us to be. But mingled into those qualities are things that we do. However, the first and the last Beatitudes in verse 3 and in verse 10 of Matthew 5 give us a primary, primary identity label that's meant to govern and shape our thinking about all the rest. In verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse 10, he said, Blessed 
are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the second part, the part that's repeated exactly at the beginning and the end that tells us who we are. The kingdom of heaven belongs to us, not as rulers, not as kings and queens, not yet at least, but the kingdom of heaven belongs to us as citizens. I am a citizen of New York. New York is my home. New York is my state. That doesn't mean I have the title deed to the whole state, but it means I have a share in the rights and privileges of living here. It also means I am obligated to obey its laws. But even more so, I am a citizen of Jesus' heavenly kingdom. The new heaven and the new earth is my true home. That doesn't mean I have the title deed to the new heaven and the new earth, the heavenly kingdom, but it means I have a share in the rights and the privileges of living there, even while I'm here on this old, cursed, broken earth. It also means I am obligated to obey its laws, to submit to its king. The first part of each beatitude simply describes what citizens of the kingdom of heaven are like. Jesus has enabled us to admit our poverty of spirit, to mourn over our sin, to humbly submit to our Savior, to desperately desire, to hunger and thirst, to live out the righteousness that exceeds the so-called righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, to extend mercy toward others who sin or are suffering, to be clean from the inside out to seek peace and reconciliation in all of our relationships and to submit to persecution for Jesus' sake and for obeying Jesus, if that should be God's will. We who see these character qualities on display in our lives are to be congratulated because Jesus has made us His citizens, citizens of His heavenly kingdom, and He promises us great things. The Beatitudes very much describe a mode of being and doing as citizens of the kingdom of heaven living in this broken world. So a big question that needs to be addressed from the Sermon on the Mount is what is the relationship between our being and our doing? And here's my answer, and I'm going to repeat this throughout the message this morning. What we do does not determine who we are. Rather, What we do reveals who we are. What we do does not determine who we are. Rather, what we do reveals who we are. The parable Jesus offers here at the end of the Kingdom Life Discourse introduces us to a wise builder and a foolish builder. How do you know which one you are? How you build, what you do, reveals your identity. What you do does not make you who you are. I want you to get this today. Our culture has this backwards and all kinds of twisted right now. And it's easy for us to forget that the Bible speaks very differently than our culture in this regard. When we introduce ourselves to someone for the first time, we begin with our name. But then most of the time is the very next question. The person we're meeting might ask us, what do you do for a living? And immediately we're pushed into defining ourselves by our occupation, by what we do. Would it really 
wreck our conversations, put an awkward obstacle in the way of relationships, if we actually, in that moment, identified ourselves as a follower of Jesus before we talked about our profession. Try it. Maybe all of us need to be a little bolder, a little quicker to reveal our fundamental identity, to highlight our most important identity marker to people. The main emphasis of this concluding paragraph to the Sermon on the Mount is our desperate need to obey Jesus. The way Jesus pitches this is not simply that you'll have a happier life if you obey Jesus, although I believe that's true. The way Jesus pitches this is that you will not survive if you don't obey Jesus' words in every area of your life. So this morning you have an opportunity to look at your own life. Do you feel like you're drowning? Do you feel overwhelmed by the pressures of life, like you're being crushed in a vice? Could part of the solution be that you need to prioritize hearing and obeying Jesus' words in that specific area of your life where you feel the most pressure? But while we might recognize our desperate need to obey Jesus' words, we all struggle to obey Jesus' words, don't we? That's one reason doing sermons can be so hard for us to listen to. You feel like a failure. You feel like you haven't, don't, and can't measure up to the expectations of the people around you or even to your own expectations of yourself, much less to the expectations of Jesus expressed in his commands. If we all have this desperate need to obey Jesus, and yet we all also have this constant struggle to obey Jesus, how can we move forward? Perhaps the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount reveals the simple but profound way forward. As we look at this passage, we're going to do it circularly. We're going to look at the big picture. We're not going to walk through the passage verse by verse. Instead, we're going to kind of approach the passage from a few different angles. And I think, even though this might be a bit repetitive, it might help us hear what Jesus has to say here a bit more clearly. At least that's my hope. As we saw last week, Jesus moves into his conclusion with several paired contrasts. There's a narrow gate and a wide gate. There's an easy way and a hard way. There's a healthy tree that bears good fruit, and there are diseased trees that bear bad fruit. So it is here. There's a wise builder and a foolish builder. What's the difference between the two? What's the foundation, isn't it? What kind of foundation does the wise builder build his house upon? The rock. Sturdy, immovable, strong rock. And what kind of foundation does the foolish builder build his house upon? The sand. Shifting, dissolvable, unstable sand. Think about the two men's houses. They could be identical in all other respects, couldn't they? They might even be neighbors, one house right next to the other. When you walk by their houses, you probably couldn't even tell them apart, except for their mailbox numbers. You can't see the foundation, right? It's hidden, underground, invisible to the casual observer. So what does the parable actually refer to? What's the comparison? The wise builder who built on the rock-solid foundation represents 
any person who listens to Jesus' teachings and does them. Anyone who obeys what they hear from Jesus. The foolish builder who built on a foundation of sand represents any person who listens to Jesus' teachings but does not do them, does not obey what they hear from Jesus. Notice the contrast between the two types of people. Jesus is not contrasting a believer with an atheist or a pagan. He is contrasting two people who both sit under Jesus' teaching and who listen to His words. He's describing the crowd and the disciples together. The crowds were astonished at His teaching. But Matthew does not say they obeyed. And obeying is the only appropriate response. Could we contemporize the picture? Jesus is describing two churchgoers. Both of these people attend church on Sundays and listen to sermons. Both of these people might read their Bibles. Most, both of these people might show an interest in Jesus. But what's the difference? One of them seeks to obey what Jesus said. The other is impressed by what Jesus says, but doesn't seek to do anything with the words he hears. Even among the twelve disciples, there was one foolish builder, Judas Iscariot. He heard Jesus' words, but he did not do them. Now, one of the wonderful things to realize at this point is that foolish builders can become wise builders. No one naturally hears Jesus' words and wants to do what he says. At any point during our life, we could be transformed from being a foolish builder to being a wise builder. How does that change, that transformation take place? Well, if we take our cues from this passage and its context, we can see a tight connection between the pictures given in this paragraph and the previous paragraph, verses 21 to 23. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, from verse 21, seems to be roughly equivalent to everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, in verse 24. So Jesus has equated the Father's will with His own words and the need to do them, to obey Jesus' words, to obey the Father's will expressed in those words is necessary for entering the kingdom of heaven. But if we look at the other side, what was it Jesus said would result in people being sent away from Him on Judgment Day? In verse 23, He had said, I never knew you. Why is it that the foolish builder doesn't obey the words he hears from Jesus? Because he doesn't know Jesus personally. Because he doesn't, isn't known by Jesus personally. Jesus doesn't know have an intimate relationship with the foolish builder. As much as this is a doing sermon, and as much as this is a passage focused on obeying Jesus, the fundamental, foundational issue is an issue of being. Do you know Jesus? Are you known by Jesus? As you sit listening to an exposition of His words this morning, if you're not immediately aware that you're in a personal relationship with this man this King, this Savior, this divine human, you have an opportunity, even as you're sitting there listening to these words, to meet Him for yourself. If you realize that you've been building your life on a foundation 
of sand, a foundation that keeps changing, a foundation that has not enabled you to endure the suffering and the struggles of life that you've already faced, you can begin building anew right now. Once you know Jesus personally, you will want to do what he says. Not only do his words become the foundation of the house of your life, but he actually personally comes to live inside your house by his spirit. And he begins the renovation process that will last the rest of your life, whereby he enables you to obey his words. And from then on, as always, what you do does not determine who you are. Rather, what you do reveals who you are. But even when Jesus' words are the foundation of your house, storms will still come. Look again at verse 25. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. You can see the same trio of problems come against the foolish builder's house in verse 27. Torrential rains come down on the roof. The rivers rise to flood stage and to wash over the foundation and even up into the house itself. And a hundred mile an hour winds hammer against the walls of that house. It's a meteorological onslaught. We've all seen on the news the devastation a hurricane or a tornado can bring to homes. Some of you may have even experienced that in your own families or for yourselves. This is a devastating scenario and it's very real. But we're still talking in terms of the parable. So what do these storms represent in real life? I'm going to suggest two layers of answers and I'm convinced that Jesus has both of them in mind. First, he's talking about suffering of all kinds. In English, we sometimes use the phrase, the storms of life. A storm is a fitting metaphor for various kinds of suffering. A storm, like suffering so often, is wildly out of our control. It's unpredictable. Even the best meteorologists are often surprised by the intensity of a storm. Or a storm may last longer than they predicted. Or it may hit an area that they didn't expect. I read that the National Weather Service missed more than 25% of tornadoes altogether from October 2007 to September 2016. And then I read that that number climbed to 39% or higher in 2013. Or sometimes a storm subsides suddenly, unexpectedly, or it changes direction. Isn't that like the suffering we experience? A person hasn't felt ill has been eating right, exercising, taking care of their body for years, and then suddenly, cancer. Another person is a super cautious and safe driver, but they're blindsided and severely injured by another driver who is texting his girlfriend. But perhaps just as often, and also very much like storms, we see what's coming all too clearly, but are completely helpless to do anything about it. When you see the tornado coming, you might be able to get your family out of the house, but there's nothing you can do to protect the house itself. A few weeks before my wife and I moved from Longview, Texas to Wheaton, Illinois, there was a rather intense rainstorm. We were living in a barn at the time, literally. We had a little apartment that had been constructed inside a huge red barn. We had already packed up my books for the move, as well as some of our other things, and I had fallen asleep on our couch in the living room. Our cat 
was meowing weirdly so that I woke up. She was standing on the floor in front of me, staring intently at something. And as my eyes adjusted and I looked at her, I saw that there was water bubbling up from the center of the living room floor. I thought maybe the roof was leaking and water had begun to pool there, but no water was coming up from underneath the floor. And it suddenly started coming up from everywhere. Well, I jumped up, opened the door, and the entire barn was flooded at about a foot's depth, and, the, and it was rising fast. So all I could do was grab the cat, throw her in her carrier, grab my laptop and my backpack, and wade out to the car. The car was also flooded, um, almost up to my knees. By God's grace, it started, and I was able to back out of the barn and drive up to our landlord's house, which was on higher ground. Now, in that case, there was no flash flood warning. It was just a normal East Texas thunderstorm. But what we didn't know was that the barn had accumulated some debris that blocked the ways that water normally would drain out. Some of you probably experienced much more severe weather stories, but that one's mine. I hope not to have another. I only lost a few books in that ordeal, and not even our furniture was damaged. The floor was significantly warped after that, but we were moving anyway, so it didn't affect us really. God was merciful in that regard. The problem that created that scenario wasn't actually the storm itself. It was something hidden to us. Not literally a foundation problem, but it was something we took for granted. We took for granted that we were safe from flooding. We never imagined that that could be a problem we would have to face. The wise builder prepares for the storms before they come. The wise builder knows that the foundation is critical and essential to prepare for a house to survive the storms that come. The wise builder cannot hope to build in a place where there will be no storms. Nowhere is completely immune from the ravages of weather. And living in this fallen world, there is nowhere immune from the ravages of suffering. Becoming a Christian, following Jesus, obeying what Jesus says doesn't exempt us from suffering. But it does enable us to endure suffering in a way that is different from those who don't know Jesus. It's the storms that test us. It's the storms that reveal the quality of the foundation. What we do does not determine who we are. What we do reveals who we are. The house of my life... The house of your life, if it's founded on obeying the words of Jesus, will not be destroyed by the storms of life. No other foundation can guarantee that. Even if a literal tornado destroys your literal house, or even if a literal hurricane takes your physical life away, the foundation remains unshaken forever. Your eternal life is eternal Following Jesus never ends. Once you start, you can't stop. Yes, we will stumble. Yes, we might take a detour. Yes, we might fall on our face. The way is hard, after all. But we all get up and keep moving forward. Jesus himself sees to that. So that's one way to view the storms that Jesus describes here. But in this context... Jesus probably intends for us to think about the final storm of life, the storm of God's judgment. 
Back in verse 13, Jesus told us about the wide gate and the easy way that leads to destruction. Enduring, entering that gate and walking that path will result in condemnation on Judgment Day. Then in verse 19, he spoke of how trees that don't bear good fruit will be chopped down and burned up. It's hard to avoid the conclusion that Jesus' metaphor means that people who don't obey Jesus will face condemnation on Judgment Day and be sentenced to hell. But then in verses 22 and 23, he makes it clear that it isn't just works. It isn't merely doing things that Jesus says to do that will make the difference on Judgment Day. It is being known by Jesus, having a relationship with Him. But if you are known by Jesus, if you have a relationship with Him, you will obey Him. Jesus said it best in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So on Judgment Day, it will be revealed who was a wise builder and who was a foolish builder during their lifetime. Even on that day, what we have done will not determine who we are. Rather, what we have done will reveal who we are. Whereas during our lives, the foundation of our lives may not be visible to others. On Judgment Day, that foundation will be revealed. If we spent our lives in pursuit of obeying Jesus' words, our house will stand. If we thought we could just attend church and listen to Jesus' words... If we thought we could just read the Bible occasionally and not respond to it with faith and obedience, our house will crumble. Our house will crumble when we face the storm of God's judgment. It's not enough to just come under biblical teaching to listen to it. It's not enough to have Christian friends. It will always come down to this question. What have you done with Jesus' words? How have you responded? So what's the difference between the disciples and the crowd? What's the difference between Judas and the rest of the disciples? Eleven of the disciples eventually became obedient to what Jesus had taught. By the power of the Holy Spirit, they became obedient. During Jesus' ministry, they were just as rebellious and unbelieving as Judas. But Judas hardened in his rebellion, and ultimately betrayed his king, a man who had befriended him and who had loved him, and then he took his own life. But what about the crowds? Surely some in the crowds later became obedient to what Jesus had taught, but at this moment, their initial response is astonishment. They're shocked. They're amazed. They're overwhelmed. But they're not yet ready to do anything about it. They're not ready to say, I really believe that the things Jesus is saying should be the foundation of my life. They're not yet obeying. And neither are the disciples, for that matter. But I wonder where you are. As you read Jesus' words on these pages, how do they strike you? Are you impressed? Are you curious to learn more? That's not a bad place to be. But may I urge you, don't stay there. Don't just admire Jesus. People who admire Jesus can and will face God's judgment if that admiration doesn't move them to action. You can admire someone without ever getting to know them. You can even imitate someone without ever getting to know them. But if you get to know Jesus, you can be sure that He will change your life. 
Jesus, his words, his teachings, his commands are the only foundation for living in this world that will endure into the next world. Let me say a brief word to those who feel overwhelmed by the demands of Jesus, to those who have a hard time listening to doing sermons. Don't despair that you don't obey Jesus perfectly. Don't despair that you struggle and fail at times. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught us to ask our loving Heavenly Father for forgiveness as a regular habit. Jesus knows that we're going to fail. He has graciously told us to do what to do when we sin. We admit it and keep running to Him. Jesus freely offers forgiveness to failure. One of my favorite movies remains Batman Begins. In it, we watch young Bruce Wayne become the Batman, the caped crusader who dresses like a bat and opposes criminality in his city. When he was a boy, he fell into a hole and broke his arm. His father was able to retrieve him from the hole and as a doctor, set the bone. And as he comforted him, he asked him a question. He said, why do we fall, Bruce, so we can learn to pick ourselves up? That is a sweet line, but it needs some biblical amending. Why do we fall? Why do we fail to obey Jesus perfectly and consistently? So that we can learn that our Father will pick us up again. What we do does not determine who we are. Rather, what we do reveals who we are. So who are you? Are you a follower of Jesus Are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Are you a child of the heavenly Father? How can you know? Are you pursuing obedience to Jesus' words? How are you responding to Jesus' words? That will reveal to you who you are. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. That's not just a directive, it's a promise. The Holy Spirit enables followers of Jesus to obey Jesus. Don't let your struggles to obey. Don't let your failures to be consistent cause you to lose confidence in who God has made you to be. Keep building on the solid rock foundation of Jesus' words, especially when the storms of life come. When circumstances are difficult, when relationships break down, when your body fails... Cling to the life-giving words of Jesus and seek to obey what he has said. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is offered free of charge to sinners who recognize their sinfulness, that they don't deserve to be citizens of God's kingdom, and who trust that the king has died to pay the penalty for their sins. The judgment that is warned of throughout Jesus' kingdom life discourse is the judgment that Jesus willingly faced in place of sinners. He is the wisest of all builders. He lived a life perfectly obedient to God, never failing, never sinning. But he allowed himself to be executed as a criminal, nailed to a cross until dead. And God accepted his self-sacrifice as full payment for the sins of all who will trust Him throughout history. Will you trust Him for that today? 
He can be trusted because he lives. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, and he is the everlasting king of this everlasting kingdom that we've been talking about throughout the Gospel of Matthew. He invites you. He welcomes you. And yes, he commands you to enter his kingdom. Enter his kingdom, and you'll never be alone. Enter his kingdom, and you can be sure that the storms of life will not destroy you. The fullness of life he offers doesn't begin when you die. It begins the moment you begin trusting him. Every person who has ever lived will submit to Jesus' authority. You can willingly submit while you're still alive and enjoy eternity filled with joy and love and satisfaction. Or, on Judgment Day, you will bow the knee and acknowledge His Lordship begrudgingly and unwillingly. And you will enter into an eternal experience of misery and pain. Will you accept the mercy of God offered to you today? It's always on offer until you take your last breath. Don't wait to respond. I'd like to invite the music team back up to the stage. We're going to sing the song that we sang earlier, In Christ Alone. And I encourage all of you as we sing these words to listen to them, to read them on the screens, and to express your faith in this Jesus, this Savior, who has given everything to provide all that you need, truly and lastingly, forever. Would you stand and sing with us? Thank you.
One might be the smallest number, but arguably the most important. One person, one action, or one word has the power to change everything. Our clients know this well. They usually have one thing on their minds when they come through our doors. They need a solution to their unexpected problem. We are ready to answer their questions and provide them with of the new life growing inside, opening the doorway for us to discuss that one little life's potential. Our educational and support programs guide new parents step-by-step step so that they might be the ones who are confident in their new journeys. You might be one person, but you have the ability to make a world of difference for many people. We depend on your involvement to be able to share the love of Christ. There are multiple ways that you can participate in this ministry. Which one will you be? The donor who provides a single mother with supplies? The volunteer who makes a difference in the lives of a struggling couple? The worker whose talents strengthen our reach? The liaison at your church who rallies the members to participate in this incredible ministry? There is so much you can do. One might be the smallest number, but arguably the most important. One person, one action, or one word has the power to change everything. Our clients know this well. They usually have one thing on their minds when they come through our doors. They need a solution to their unexpected problem. We are ready to answer their questions and provide them with the resources they need to make an informed decision. Our ultrasound service gives them a first glimpse of the new life growing inside, opening the doorway for us to discuss that one little life's potential. Our educational and support programs guide new parents step-by-step step so that they might be the ones who are confident in their new journeys. You might be one person, but you have the ability to make a world of difference for many people. We depend on your involvement to be able to share the love of Christ. There are multiple ways that you can participate in this ministry. Which one will you be? The donor who provides a single mother with supplies? The volunteer who makes a difference in the lives of a struggling couple? The worker whose talents strengthen our reach? The liaison at your church who rallies the members to participate in this incredible ministry? There is so much you can do. Be the one.